Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Today on UX Cake, I'm talking with Timothy Bardlevins, who's a product design leader and a leader in the culture initiative at Microsoft. Now, I consider myself an advocate for diversity and inclusion, and yet I find myself often thinking, how do we go beyond checking the boxes, the boxes of gender and race and age and LBGTQ or ableness? Those are all very important to make sure that we are including, but how do we create true Truly diverse teams that are diverse in thought, in background, in culture? And how do we make sure that we're developing products that are inclusive to all? How do we break the molds that are exclusive in their very nature? So that's what I talked about with Timothy, who's an outspoken advocate for equity. In this episode, we talked about cultivating a culture of diversity and inclusion and what that means and how that includes both attraction and development and about how we all can help in creating products that are inclusive. Now, real quick, before we jump into today's episode, I have a couple of exciting things to tell you all about. First, we've got our second live recording event coming up on October 18th here in downtown Seattle, and the subject is UX for Startups. Now, I recently joined a startup as head of UX at Spruce Up, so the topic is top of mind for me, and I'll be joined by the VP of UX at Pulse Labs, Philip Hunter, and the Chief Product Officer at Invio, Cassie Wallander. These are both early stage startups similar to Spruce Up. So if you want a free ticket to that event, all you have to do is join the UX Cake email list at uxcake.co. Just go there and subscribe. We'll be sending out a promo code along with a link to get tickets. You will not get a lot of spammy emails. I promise I don't have time for that. Second announcement, UX Cake has a Patreon page. Now, why is that exciting? Because it means that if the UX Cake podcast can generate donations from listeners, there's a chance we can continue this great content. We don't make money from this podcast. We don't sell content or a service. We don't sell ads. It actually costs money to produce. So if you do the math, that's just not sustainable. Now I get input from listeners from around the world who appreciate this content. So now you can help be part of the UX Cake community and support more great content. Go to patreon.com slash UX Cake. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash UX Cake. Okay, let's get on with the show. So thank you so much, Timothy, for joining me on UX Cake. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, yes, yes. I am just so intrigued by what you're doing at Microsoft. Besides your full-time job there as a <laughs> in product design, you're leading Microsoft's culture initiative. And I was just excited to talk to you about that and share that with our listeners. So tell me about Microsoft's culture initiative. And I would love to hear about you know the goals and the vision and what it is. Yeah. My role at Microsoft when I first started last year 
uh, was specifically within one organization. And one of the reasons I was hired was because not only my storytelling ability, but my passion around inclusion and diversity and in design. And one of the first things I said when I was interviewed was I'm the black guy. And I gave a very clear reason as to why I always present like that. And so even when I spoke at a conference a couple of weeks ago, it was still my first slide. Assistance thing I do. But yeah, so as far as Microsoft is concerned, I started off with the one organization that I originally joined within the Windows Devices group. And it was specifically on my team of about 200 and some odd people that we started a culture initiative. It was really a culture team. And so the whole thought was there was a bit of angst on the team. There were some issues with attrition and all kinds of other things, trust when it came to leadership. And so our core goal was to really, one, evaluate the team, and then to start to understand what does it mean to have an inclusive culture? What does it mean to be able to come to work and feel your whole self and be empowered to do that and be empowered to speak your mind and not be scared of levels and just all the things that I tie itself with innovation. I since left that team and I'm in the new organization, but I'm actually now working more directly with design leadership here on culture initiatives, uh, as well as partnering with people around the company on culture. So all that to say, I am not alone and I'm not the starter of culture, but I am an advocate and I have been working hard on it. And I've been partnering with folks all across the company to develop it, to create strategies around it. A lot of my role now is really about how do I work with our leadership to understand culture, to understand diversity and inclusion, to understand what does it mean and how do we actually do it? And how do we not only set a vision for it, but have actual action behind it? Because I found that's one of the most important things and the largest things that's been missing is that we speak about diversity and inclusion, but there is no actionable takeaways. There's nothing like leaders feel like, yeah, I know it's important, but I don't know what to do. And so that's been my job is to tell leaders what to do, to help them understand these are the actions you need to take. Here's how we focus on it. Here's how we create structures and processes around it. And I totally want to get into that more. Like, what do we do? How, you know, what is effective? But I want to go back to something that you said, you know, like you just started out with, I'm the black guy. And you have a story around that. And, you know, it conveys your passion for diversity and inclusion. And But it also, I think, speaks to your your willingness to be uncomfortable or actually to be okay with other people being uncomfortable. And I think these conversations can be really uncomfortable. So I'm just curious how you got to that place where, and maybe it's more about how do you help people feel more comfortable or is that not even important? Yeah. So there are levels to that, right? One thing that I've been saying a lot, especially lately, especially in the climate of the world as it is today, and it's nothing new, it's just transforming. But I've said a lot that most people say, yeah, there's progress to be made. And progression means that we are stepping, like we're putting a toe out of the box, like we're putting our big toe in the water to test it out. And then we'll see if that's okay. And then maybe we'll go from our toe to our calf and our calf to our ankle, so on and so forth, right? And so the thing about progress is that we're maintaining this comfort zone and we're slowly expanding what it means to be comfortable, where actual change is being uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable. And so actually one of my old managers said to me once, Tim, you go a mile to let people know it's okay to go an inch. 
And that's the type of culture and environment I like to have around me is I'm going to be completely honest and open because I want to encourage you to be the same with me and to know that that's the type of culture and that's the type of environment that we should be within. Personally, I use I'm the black guy because it's an icebreaker. The first time I ever did it was at a Christmas party when I worked for Capital One and we were at a Christmas party for our whole organization. It was my director's husband who I met. And I walked up to him and mind you, Capital One is very much a bank, even on the corporate side. And so it was this thought of homogeny. It was like everyone should be together and it's perpetuation of homogeny. And so you didn't talk about how people were different. We highlighted how we're the same. And you'll find a lot of diversity and inclusion trainings are like this. Hey, let's talk about how we're the same. Let's talk about our likes and not our differences. And so when I walked up to him, I said, hey, I'm the black guy. And I saw my director's face turn scarlet red. And her husband and I ended up having one of the best conversations ever. And it was in a way that I don't think he would have ever opened up to me. And because they lived in Atlanta for a while. And Atlanta is hella black. There's no way around it. <laughs> so we talked about everything from the traffic there to the amazing sights to the food and it was great. And I realized that one of the strongest barriers for people is me being a black person, me being a black man. It's very hard and you don't know how to take it sometimes. And even if it's a subconscious thing, you find that you're, it's like one of those things of like, okay, how do I talk to this person without offending them or making them feel uncomfortable, wherever the case may be. And so that's one of the things it was like, you know what, if I can break this one bit of ice, then we get past the major barrier and we can move on to other things. And especially because I hate small talk. It's probably one of the things that I'm most uncomfortable with. But that said, I also realized that being a black man in corporate life was very difficult. And it was, I couldn't have a bad day. I couldn't, you know, say I'm upset with something. I had to always keep a smile on my face to seem non-threatening. You know, if I had problems with my management at the time, then I had to create I statements. So even if my manager was a problem, it was, what can I do to make these things better? So I took on the emotional baggage of that. And after a while, I just got really tired of it. And I've always been a person where if I'm not happy at a place, I leave. And so I realized that for me to be truly happy at a job, I have to be true to myself. And most people who know me know that I haven't changed very much at all. I'm the same person I was five years ago. You know, some things may have changed about me, but for the most part, my personality is the same. And so I knew that that's the person I wanted to be when I went to work. I wanted to say outrageous things. I wanted to have great conversations. I wanted to make jokes and enjoy my life at work because that's a lot of time we spend is at work. So I made the decision if I want to be happy as a person and feel truly holy myself, then I will be the black guy. I will be the black gay southerner. I will be the person who says outrageous things. I will be the HR nightmare. I will be all these things and I will embrace them. And I will encourage people around me to be truly themselves. We can just have amazing work together. So that's the type of culture I've built around me. That's the type of person I've developed over time. And so when I explain this to people, it's always, this is who I am. When people say, oh, well, I'm more than a woman, I'm more than this, I'm more than that. I was like, no, I'm not more than just a black guy. I am the black guy. It is the amalgamation of my experiences. It's how I view life. It's how I have to move through life. And so I cannot remove my blackness when I talk about experiences. I cannot remove my blackness when I build experiences at Microsoft because those things are very unique. And those are stories and those are viewpoints, points of view that I have that may be unique that no one else will have. And I know there's an importance to that. So that's saying a lot, but that's really the full thought behind it. It speaks to why you're focused on 
culture? Because I think increasingly what I'm seeing both in companies and also in the media talking about diversity and inclusion, it seems to be centered on race, gender, sometimes sexual orientation or age or ableness, things that we can more or less create a checkbox for to a large degree. And what I see less is what talking about real diversity of thought or emotion or personality or education or even, you know, your own, the culture that you bring with you. Because if we're all being told to fit into the same mold, we still have a fairly homogeneous culture, regardless of, you know, whether people look different. And so, you know, that means a lot of people aren't going to be really happy if they don't fit into that mold. And so what I hear you talking about is having a culture of inclusion, which is very different than is kind of like the other way around, you know, where you're actually talking about nurturing and developing diversity. You talk about kind of diversity being the funnel and then inclusion maybe being the culture that keeps people there. Exactly. And that's actually something that I really try to focus in on and get people to understand for when I'm out and I'm speaking at different events about diversity, inclusion and culture. I usually first say that it's more than diversity, inclusion, it's culture, because the culture is the umbrella in which diversity, inclusion lives within. Once you take a step past that, one of the things that I really focus on is like there is what we call the employee life cycle. And so within that, there's about eight steps. You have attract, recruit, hire, onboard, develop, retain, advance depart. If you were to take that and you were to slice it down the middle, then you would know that, let's say we remove out depart and onboarding. So how do you actually get onboarded to your team? And then what do you do when you leave the company? Or how does a company facilitate your departure in a positive way? So if you take those two out and you have these six other steps, then attract, recruit, and hire are all about diversity. It's about how do we get different people in. But when then when you look at the development of a person, the retention of a person, and the advancement of that person, that's all about inclusion. And that's a different conversation. And typically, to your point, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we only focus on diversity. Now, even within diversity, and this to your other point, is that we only focus on the core things of race, gender, identity, ability, status, and et cetera. But we don't understand the intersectionalities and how those have play a part in things. There is something that around the diversity of trauma, like the traumas in our lives and how does that influence or impact the work that we do or how we move through life. And that's a really interesting view into diversity. And it has a direct impact into how we include people that you may not ever fully understand if you don't have the right kind of culture to be able to facilitate those conversations. But even with that being said, I would say that when I think about these things, like one of the things I bubble up to is, well, I hinge a lot of this culture work on some of the terminology and some of the foundational knowledge around racial equity. Because a lot of it really starts to blend into each other and it makes a lot of sense. And even if you pull out racial equity and it's just equity, that's really important. And you start to see that some of these issues of culture have direct ties to equity. And so when you say, okay, well, you know, we're going to focus on these specific areas, but you are still telling you you have to come in and be like us. Well, what you're saying is that there's what we call a center of power. And the center of power is for a company, for example, is that thing that everyone has that's a like or the expectation of power. Like 
hey, I am a, a leader. And as a center of power, I expect you to look like this, act like this, do this thing, because I hold the power, which means I hold access to it. And so even though you may be a different person, you may be a person who's out on what's called the borderlands. And there's this borderlands training that was created by a person named Paku Her. She's an amazing person who works with racial equity space, but she has this training around the borderlands. And it's a thought that a person who is on the borderlands may be different in some way. And we, all of us as pers- as people have different centers of power and we are all on the borderlands in some way. So if I, a black man is coming into Microsoft, a very white company or a white centric company, I am a person who's on the borderlands and they're saying, hey, we want diversity come into us. But then they ask, are you a culture fit? Well, a culture fit is exclusionary. And so it could easily say that just because you are racially different doesn't mean you can be mentally or culturally different. And if you come in and you are different from us, then you must get out. You have to still be like us, even though you don't look like us. And so that's this weird center of power that we have to come to terms with and say we should break that. Because truly opening up that center of power and providing someone access means that you don't have to look or think like me. We're still inviting you in. You can still come in and be a part of this thing. And that is only facilitated through a positive, inclusive culture. So it's really interesting just in general how equity work and culture work are so tied together. It's also extremely interesting when you start to think about power and access and how they play such a massive role in the inclusion side once we get past diversity. I really want to get to talking about what is effective, what can we do as individuals, as leaders. Before we get there, and I maybe should have started with this, is why is this, I mean, this is a UX podcast. And clearly, I'm talking to you, your product design leader. But I mean, what does developing a culture of diversity have to do with design and UX? Yeah. So an organization is designed. How we like if you think about it, someone has to plan or create a strategy around who's at the top, who manages what, how does that information continue down to other individuals? How is work done? Has like all these things are designed entities. And so when we understand that an organization is a designed entity, then we understand that someone has to be the designer. And that means that the people within the organization are the users. And so for me, I see organizational culture is the most important, the most complex user experience challenge because it's how do we help users be effective, be happy, be productive and grow. And by extension is like if we understand that these and we are supporting users in doing this, then ultimately we are creating a more successful business or product. And so there's actually direct correlations between how we think about people and how we think about organizations and how we think about products. And if we understand it from that perspective, then we see that, like I said, one of the biggest challenges we have, well, at least for me as a user experience designer, as a product design manager, is how do I design a culture in which I'm getting the best results possible out of my team, out of the work that we're doing. And so I think it's a design challenge. And I think once we start to really understand that, then we also start to question why aren't more designers in like places like HR or, you know, these other areas in which, you know, we think a very specific way and we can help guide some of the thought processes and the the systems that 
come into play, the processes that come into play. That's a really interesting point because I'd say the tools for employees are typically given the least amount of money to or resources for creating good experiences and employees at large companies anyway are typically expected to use tools that are difficult and designed by developers often. <laughs> Would you say mm-hmm. that's your experience yeah. as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I will, you know, Microsoft is very guilty of this. We create for the power user. We create for a subset of individuals who hold power and who have the power to sway. And so because we create for that, many times we can create products and experiences and tools, not both internally and externally, that are specifically for those in power. And so, yeah, you know, the funding for creating the right types of tools or better tools seems to be diminished in lieu of that. And so you never can find enough money or enough resource to do the right thing. Before I get move on to, you know, like programs, I want to explore this a little bit more in design. As designers, what can we do to make sure, other than, you know, hiring people who are different from us or working with people who are different from us, what can we do to make sure that we are creating a design that is inclusive? So it's interesting because in design, we have this one of the most important concepts is empathy, but we fail at it consistently. We create based on the solutions we think versus the solutions we've learned. And I think that's one of the most important things as designers we can do better with is how do we develop empathy for our user or for the people around us? And it's not going out and saying, hey, how can I save you or how can I make things better? But just tell me. Give me information. I want to learn more. Give me insight. Why is this an issue? Why has it become an issue? Well, where did it come from? Asking more questions and stop trying to create solutions is a really important step. And us really understanding what does it mean to have empathy for people is super, super important to really understanding how to develop a more inclusive culture. I think the other thing is really about access because you can be empathetic And you can take all these things in and then you can go and create or you can take it back and internalize it. But that doesn't actually mean anything without the provision of access. And so access could be access to knowledge, access to or insight, access to roles, access to different tools, whatever the case may be. I think that's the other thing that we have to do more of is providing access. That may mean that, you know, if we if we normally go to an event every year, it, we tell more people about it. We tell people who don't look like us about it. You know, there are so many things that happen across the country that I have no idea about because I don't have access to the right people. And so, you know, it's hard. You know, some of the things may be like giving back, providing access may be you as a designer going to volunteer to go to a high school or elementary school or middle school and talking to kids about design and talking about how much of a fruitful and amazing career it is and how you can create the experiences that touch the whole world because many people don't know about it. It's one of those things where design itself is a very elitist industry. It's one where you have to have a lot of money to get in. And if you don't have a lot of money, you have to scratch and scrape to move up. It's one where many times you need to have friends or friends of friends to truly like get into it and feel like you have like you're pulling your own weight. And it's one where we exclude people who may not have gone to a big school 
or who may just be designing pamphlets at a church or things like that. So I think empathy is one that's super important. The other is how do we like understanding our own personal centers of power and how do we help provide access to those who do not have power? And are there certain as back to the empathy, how is that different than talking to users? So when you speak to a user, I think you're trying to create something and you think you have a solution in mind and you almost want to validate that solution. You want to say, is this right or wrong? It's very task oriented. When you don't have a product in mind, you don't have a service in mind, you don't have a solution in mind, you just want to learn more and you want to learn more from various people and potentially find patterns within those learnings and then from there potentially create a solution that might work and then return back to those people and say, hey, if we did this, would it help your experience? Would it improve it? That's a little bit of a different process, right? That's you saying that I'm coming in completely clean slate. I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to pretend like I do. I just want to know more. I want to understand your experiences. I want to understand like how do you feel about this situation or this like your experiences within this area? And then how can we, is there a way that we can help it grow together? Is there something that has been done that doesn't work? Or do you feel like there aren't any tools or resources for X, Y, or Z? I think it's really just the motivation around it of you asking and just trying to understand versus you asking to to validate a solution or validate something that you're doing. Mm, yeah. So that sounds like generative research to me, you know, like <laughs> interviews and in the field. And I'm wondering if what you're talking about is different than what you see happening with generative research. So when it comes to specifically around the industry when it comes to like diversity in design inclusion once you come into design when it comes to organizational culture what i don't see enough of tell us your experiences let us understand what the problems are from your perspective and then let's work together to figure out solutions i don't see that enough at all many times I've seen that, like, for example, many of these things, we try to solve them via the same diversity and inclusion tactics we've used, the HR has used since the 1960s. Many of these things are not very different. Many of them, we do this thing of reaching out and wanting and saying, okay, we're going to hire all these people, but we don't actually do the work to bring them in. Or if we bring them in, we don't do the work to change the culture to make it to help facilitate for them. And so the lack of empathy is due to the assumption of the answer or the lack of desire to do the work. And so within the space in which I really I say I'm specializing in when it comes to culture, no, there is no generative research when it comes to empathy and how do we start to understand what's going on and what's the situation. Again, I think we make assumptions and then we try to just do what we've already been doing and expect different results and we never do. So would your recommendation just for something kind of tactical, like a designer who wants to, or a PM or a product team, hopefully it's not just design. <laughs> Designers aren't the only people who make products. Um, it's a whole team of product people. If they want to make sure that they are creating products that are in- inclusive what is that tactical advice that you would give for starting that process? So if they're creating products for people, first look internally to see who's around you that's not like the core feature group, let's say. And so if you don't have anyone around you that's not like you and someone within that core feature group, then it's imperative that you step outside of yourself and you step outside of 
the thing you're trying to solve or that thing you're trying to develop. And then go back to the original question you're asking, like go back to the original, what is the original impetus of this thing that you're creating, that your team is creating? And from that, that's where you have to go and do the question asking where you, like I've had been on teams where, you know, folks have just gone out of the building and stood on the street and asked, say, hey, can I ask you a couple of questions about your experience with this thing? And so like that's like basically if you don't have the insight, go and get it. Do the generative research, do ethnographies, sit and watch people. Like, for example, if the assumption is that people operate a specific way when, I don't know, buying books, then go to a bookstore and sit and watch and watch multiple different types of people. But then don't go to just the bookstore go to the public library where there may be a totally different set of people because they can't afford books. Go to the public library in the side of town you would never normally go and just sit and watch people. Like, take the extra step, go the extra mile to understand people unlike yourself and ask a lot of questions. Like, I think it's so easy to be able to reach out to people and ask questions, to go into a coffee shop and say, hey, can you just take two seconds to answer a question for me or answer a series of questions? And you'll get a lot of rejections, but you'll also get a lot of yeses. Does that always work or does is it always helpful if you're on some sort of tight timeline? No. But then the question is, do you have an iterative enough process where you can create something, test it, and then go and ask questions, get feedback from folks, and then iterate on that? Like, are you building into your process a way of iteration to get the feedback you need, to ensure that you're crossing all your T's and, and, and dotting I's and whatever the case may be. It's just, it's basically, is your feature team willing to put in the work to ensure that you're developing products with an inclusive lens? Yeah, I think that's a really good point of doing the extra work to make sure that you're asking a diverse set of users if you truly want your product to be inclusive and, you know, not the status quo, right? So I'd love to know more about, so these, you know, diversity and inclusion initiatives and trainings, they're very well-meaning, but not very effective. So for someone, well, at any sort of company, but I'm at a startup, so perfect opportunity you know, we are developing our company culture. What is effective? What are techniques or frameworks that can be used to help us have a diverse and inclusive culture? I think so. Starting from the top is the vision. Has your organization already established a vision of for its culture? And within that vision, does it include language like inclusion? Does it in include language around diversity, around being uniquely yourself or encouraging individuality or whatever the case may be, like ensuring that you have a cultural centric vision that everyone can rally around? And then developing a set of values behind that, you know, and those values are like, you know, it could be something as simple as create without fear, which is to say that you are completely able to create without being scared of being torn down, without being scared about what others would say. Like it's an open and honest environment for you to be able to create and get the feedback you need to grow. Like those things are important. And, you know, for me, whenever I work with PMs on creating different experiences, first thing we do is I ask is what is the user centric statement? Like, and then what are the user principles or user promises? Like, what are we promising that we will do for the user or won't do to hurt the user? And those are the things we hinge to and we stick to. And if there are any features 
or sets of features or whatever that come against those principles, then we have what we need to push back and say, no, this goes against the experience that we promised for our users. We should do the same thing as an organization. From there, it's really about understanding like what is going to be the core focus. Because you can't, like I said, within the employee lifecycle, depending on how large a smart organization is, you can't focus on everything. So what are the core things you do want to focus on? For some well-established organizations, it may be, let's start off with engagement. How do we get people to just be engaged in the team and help, like, that's around retention, right? Like, how do we help retain the folks that we have and make sure they have a positive experience? Or it could be around the attract or the retractor hiring buckets. And so with that, it's, well... How are we recruiting people? How are we interviewing individuals? Like there's studies that have shown that when you do job tests, many times managers will go for the person that's familiar to them and test anyone else that's not familiar to them and hire the person that they didn't test because they're familiar. And so like how are we incorporating inclusive practices into our hiring process? And then some of it is really understanding like what are the organizational needs and how can we fulfill them in an ethical way? That could be, you know, because we are a super, like we're organization is growing right now, we can't afford to hire someone that's junior, someone that has too diverse of an experience because it takes a lot of training and we need someone to get going. Well, that only goes, that's only an excuse for so long. And many companies I've seen have used this excuse to limit who they hire or the type of people they hire. And it automatically is exclusionary to people of color or people of lower social economic statuses. So I think that's one of the things is like choosing the focus that you have as an organization saying these are the things we're really going to hone in on and perfect. And once we have a system around this, then we can incorporate other pieces of that employee lifecycle. And then the final thing is really around being strategic and saying, okay, we're going to create a structure around these focuses we have. So when I Let's say, for example, again, the focus is on retention. What are all the individual actions that we say we're going to do within this bucket? And then what is the responsibility of a leader or the leaders to actually, to ensure that these things are being taken care of? What is the accountability model to ensure that we're all being held accountable to executing properly and hitting these key areas the way we need to? And then what's the responsibility of the people as like the general community of that organization to ensure that they're providing the right kind of feedback up and that leadership is listening and that they're being a part of that positive development of culture. And so there's there's levels to it. It can get very complicated, but generally I, whenever I'm like doing a presentation, I try to show a very simple structure of this is what it looks like to have one key uh, focus and then here's how it can be broken out into one part, five parts, whatever the case may be, and then how we can assign people to those things so that we know that it's being executed properly. I mean, that's what we have currently on our team today. So we just had a ha- all hands on our team today. And what we communicated out to the team was, here are the leadership individuals who are assigned to these tasks, whether it's how do we communicate better, how do we communicate out, how do we train managers to be better managers, or how do we have a better structure around how what does it mean to get promoted? And then from there, those people are on the line to develop, to present, to execute. And then we have follow-ups. The other thing is making culture a part of every leadership meetings, especially because as leaders, it should be a common topic. 
as a leader, it's your job to develop a positive culture for your people. As a people manager, you are there for your people, not them there for you. And switching that mentality is important. So having culture part of that is super important. And of course, finally, if, as if you are a leader, including the people under you, you can't develop the culture in a silo with just leadership. You have to have the voice of individuals. So developing a culture of feedback where you can get consistent and regular feedback also helps build trust in their structures around being able to have small wins as you develop larger strategies for the much harder uh, culture shifts that need to happen. I think those are fantastic suggestions. Thank you so much. Just in closing, are there any words of advice or encouragement that you would like to leave with the listeners? I think that a couple of things. Advice would be culture does not have to be initiated by leadership. It should be supported by it, but it doesn't have to be initiated by leadership. And if you are a person who works in a place where it's not the greatest culture or where you feel like it, there are improvements, like there are opportunities to do even better, then it's okay to to start the conversation, to be like, if you feel courageous enough, start the conversation, start to explore, ask questions. How can we improve? How can we get better? What are some potential problems we have in our organization? How can we make this better? And then what I've had to do is present the case to the leadership and say, hey, here's what it means to have a positive culture and some of the issues that I'm seeing from on the ground level. It'd be awesome if we could do these things to help improve it. Here's a conversation around, you know, how positive a culture positively impacts business or how, you know, for example, one percentage point increase in diversity on a team increases the revenue three percentage points with an organization. So there's a direct monetary value if, you know, they're a very money driven type of leadership or organization. And so it's out of like anyone can start it. All you need to do is find allies and go from there. Like if you can develop allies and get someone and get the right people in the room, then the work can catch fire easily in the best way possible. And then as far as hope, the great thing is that more and more conversations are being had. I think that sometimes people are fearful of what does it mean to have diversity? And is it like, oh, we're just going to get rid of all the white people in the room? or something like that. It's something of like, hey, this is an additive process, not a subtractive process. And we want to add more positive voices, not to remove anyone's voices from the room. And this is a culture shift that has to happen across design all up. And, you know, I sat in a retreat with several design leaders from various companies across the country who all are seeing the need to make this shift. And so the hope is honestly that in doing so, especially people who are not of the majority, they'll hopefully see more opportunities come their way because companies are taking a more and more keen interest in how we hire, how we develop, and how we grow individuals of color, of diverse backgrounds, of different gender identities and ability statuses, and so on. Oh, fantastic. I love that. So just in parting, before I let you go, how can our listeners follow you online? Well, it's really easy. The first is, the easiest way is literally just to Google my name because I am the only one of me outside of my father and he doesn't have the type of digital footprint that I have. <laughs> yeah, foot, thank you, footprint that I have. <laughs> that said, on Twitter is I think underscore I design. Instagram, if you, especially if you love to follow someone who has shoes, I'm known as the shoe person. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. I have an amazing collection of shoes. And so that's also I think underscore I design. And of course, like I said, my website is bartlevins.com. So 
the easiest way to follow me and, or to find me is just to look up Timothy Bard Levins. Yeah, and spell your last name for us. It's B as in boy, A-R-D as in dog, L-A, V as in Victor, E-N-S as in Samuel. I've gotten really used to saying that because I have to say it's customer service all the time. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I have a name like that as well. This has been so wonderful, Timothy. I hope that I have a chance to talk to you about this or actually anything again, because Absolutely. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I thank you so much for your time and for joining me on UXK. Most definitely. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow Timothy on Twitter so you can catch him at the next conference or podcast he speaks at. And if you want to hear him talk more about the subjects of diversity and inclusion and about his own background, you can hear him on the Revision Path podcast, episode 215, or the Control Click cast, episode 113. The links to those podcasts are in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the UX Cake podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. You can do this very easily on Twitter or from whatever podcast platform you listen in. Chances are they will thank you and I will thank you. So share it. Also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or online at uxcake.co. And please consider supporting the podcast on patreon.com slash uxcake. And as always, thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.